The Hamlet Podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's book club, and I hope you've managed to take a look at The Taming of the Shrew. The Two Gentlemen of Verona was such a curiously off-putting caper, I rather think I've made things worse now by this week following their antics with this fascinating and troubling play. We've moved from Verona to Padua, where a rich man has two daughters. One is pretty and seems sweet, and no shortage of men would like to marry her. But the father, Baptista, won't let her get married until someone weds her troublesome older sister. And that older sister, Catherine, is the shrew of the title. Rather conveniently, a swashbuckling braggart called Petruchio shows up, and as soon as he hears how much money is attached as a dowry, he decides that he'll marry her. From the moment they meet, it's a war of words, but he embarrasses her and chips away at her shrewishness until, at a feast celebrating her sister's wedding at the end of the play, she makes a mind-boggling speech about how wives should worship their husbands. Now, there are various subplots involving the various men competing to marry Bianca, the younger sister, but the play is absolutely dominated by Kate and Petruchio. Every production I have ever seen, or even read about, somehow tries to apologise for the aggressive, shocking treatment of its heroine. It's as if we always have to find a way to tame the taming of the shrew. Productions are often set in versions of the medieval or Shakespearean past, helpful perhaps because there's so much talk of clothing in the play, so to costume it in the way that he might have envisaged it at least makes the language start to make sense. The past is a convenient frame to introduce a world in which men treat women the way they do in this play. Feminism, autonomy or equality very much get in the way, it seems, and what is extraordinary is how frequently audiences just surrender. Kate often gets a round of applause for that final monologue because it's such a relief to see this headstrong woman have all her problems solved by finding a husband who can put manners on her. Some even consider it romantic. There's a happy ending for them now that she's learned to behave herself. It's not really as if we've made incredible progress in the four centuries since this play appeared. The world is still overwhelmingly patriarchal, women are still paid and even valued less than men, and the societal assumption that marriage is the longed-for happy ending is still very much there. So, of course, there's an inbuilt, sort of indoctrinated part of us that responds with relief or even excitement or romance when this story reaches its conclusion. In this play, women are bought and sold, and most of its stage business is just that. Business. Kate's suitor is attracted to the idea primarily because of the amount of gold that she comes with, and Baptista chooses a husband for Bianca, the other daughter, based on how much money the suitor is going to be worth. Three women in this story wind up with husbands by the end of it, but their consent is not a particularly necessary requirement. Indeed, one of Petruchio's more memorable lines is that will you, nil you, I will marry you. It's worth mentioning, of course, that in Elizabethan England, a wife did have to consent in her marriage. So even in that, this play is something of a fantasy. And as we're going to discuss, there are many, many ways in which the artificiality of this do come into play. But all the same, we do still seem to be swept up in it. And these women 
do they get a choice or not? Last week, we might have wondered, who is Sylvia? This week, I have definitely spent quite some time questioning, who is Kate? In various productions, none more so than in the film by Franco Zeffirelli, Kate is introduced as a violent maniac who terrorises her household, smashing furniture and screaming at everyone for most of the day. Exhausting as this must be, it's also not very interesting. Clearly, she does, according to the play, smash a lute over her would-be music teacher's head, but he probably had that coming. I'm more interested in imagining that Kate is someone who has never been challenged and who is therefore bored out of her mind. In this, I think she's more like Hedda Gabler, a woman out of time, stuck in the wrong era, in the wrong community, who's far too intelligent for her situation. She rails against everyone around her because she can, and she's unpleasant because she doesn't have any respect for any of them. She also doesn't seem to have any fun. Now, of course, we all know how Hedda Gabler ends up, but people in Shakespeare plays don't do that sort of thing. Certainly not women. And then, in Padua, this lunatic shows up and sees right through Kate and doesn't give her an inch. Over the course of the story, he embarrasses her at their wedding by showing up late, dressed like a madman, and then won't even let her stay for the party before carting her off to his home. Once there, he starves her, deprives her of sleep, apparently gaslights her and makes her agree with his mad pronouncements that the sun is the moon and night is day. Of course, romantics might argue that he himself goes without food and sleep while all of this is going on, and that perhaps it does her no harm, after a spoiled life in rich Baptista's house, to have someone say no to her. But there's a vein of cruelty, and maybe even sadism, that runs through this treatment. It's no accident that one of the earliest films of the play, starring Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford, begins with footage of a Punch and Judy show. This is the violent story of a woman who is worn down. One of the weirdest things about this play is that it has an induction, a framing device that starts the story. Before there's any mention of Padua or difficult women or anything like it, we begin in front of an alehouse on a heath, we're told, where a man called Christopher Sly is drunkenly making a nuisance of himself. He is so deeply unpleasant that after he passes out in an alcoholic stupor, the various lords and players around cook up a plan to play a trick on him. They'll set him up so that when he wakes, they'll convince him that he's actually a rich man and that he's been dreaming that he was a commoner, and that the page Bartholomew is actually his wife, but that he's not quite well enough recovered for them to have a conjugal visit, so instead, for their entertainment together, they will watch a play. And that play is The Taming of This Shrew. To me, what's most interesting is that such explicit instructions are given to Bartholomew, the young page, as to how he's going to have to behave as Christopher Sly's wife. Sarah, go you to Bartholomew, my page, and see him dressed in all suits like a lady. That done, conduct him to the drunkard's chamber and call him Madam. Do him obeisance. Tell him from me, as he will win my love, he bear himself with honourable action so as he hath observed in noble ladies unto their lords, by them accomplished. Such duty to the drunkard let him do, with soft, low tongue and lowly courtesy, and say, What is to your honour will command? 
wherein your lady and your humble wife may show her duty and make known her love. And then, with kind embracements, tempting kisses, and with declining head into his bosom, bid him shed tears as being overjoyed to see her noble lord restored to health, who for this seven years hath esteemed him no better than a poor and loathsome beggar. And this is all very well, they're fairly clear instructions, but think about it. Shakespeare is here acknowledging the fact of a teenage boy playing a noble lady. He's pointing out all of the tricks of the trade, all of the behaviours that one might expect in a boy player performing as a female, which is of course what's going to happen in the fake play too. Of course, we all know that all of Shakespeare's plays were initially performed by male actors. But there's definitely something afoot here. The framing device is an added level of artificiality to the story. Its setting in Italy rather than England is another. Given that the trick is being played on sly by a group of at least some players, it's worth acknowledging that several of the characters in the story are similar to those of Italian Commedia dell'arte. We see put-upon servants, randy old men, overprotective fathers and young lovers who cannot get married until a problem is solved. This always strikes me as a very loud play. There's a great deal of shouting and nobody ever seems to have a quiet moment. Petruchio and Kate are the greatest culprits, of course, but there's just so much clamour throughout, perhaps at least, because it begins in such deliberately false performative circumstances. Now, is there any point at which we're supposed to stop thinking about how it's a fake show put on to mess with Christopher Sly? In The Secret History of the World, a terrifically entertaining read, the argument is made that this induction really is a meditation And this entire play is an allegory for how we all have to find a way of controlling the wildness of our own minds. This is certainly one of the most imaginative explanations I've ever read for the juxtaposition of Christopher Sly and the antics that follow in Padua. Notably, Shakespeare himself seems to have lost interest after the first act. Sly and Bartholomew disappear completely and they don't reappear for the rest of the play. So much so that several productions have Sly played by the same character who plays Petruchio. When Jonathan Price played the part in the 1970s for the Royal Shakespeare Company, he came on through the audience and he started destroying the set at the beginning of the show in this ad-libbed, angry, drunken display, shall we say. His performance was so realistic that early audience members called for house management and even the police to try to stop him. This was clearly a brilliant way of showing that the machismo of the character was an entirely credible and contemporary threat. Now, what I'd really like to see would be a production that did something like this introduction of Sly and Petruchio, but also had the Bartholomew actor play Catherine. Some authors write that if Shakespeare's name wasn't on this play, it's unlikely we'd ever pay it any attention. But the fact is, he did write it as far as we know, or as far as we accept, and we do still seem to be fascinated. There's a tremendous electricity between the two sparring leads. Their wordplay is exciting and has some impressively filthy jokes. Perhaps because of the unvarnished and shocking depiction of an Italy wherein women are little more than men's property, always remembering that it is a staged fantasy for a drunkard, contemporary productions still try to solve its problems. Last year, in Stratford, there was a gender-swapped version 
wherein all the men's roles were turned into women, and it became a battle between Petruchia and a young man called Catherine. The patriarchal granite that runs through this play is so strong that I found this device rather unconvincing. All of the supporting roles in the stories were fun and engaging, but even when it was Petruchia messing with a male Kate, it still felt like the story of a difficult man insisting on a woman submitting to his terms. The narrative of an unruly woman who could only be tamed by a very dominant and overbearing man might have been rather political in Shakespeare's time. As we will doubtless mention often through these episodes, the play appears in an England governed by an unmarried woman, Elizabeth I. Woe betide anyone who might call her a shrew, of course, but it's worth bearing her in mind. An outspoken woman, seemingly impervious or allergic to the idea of a husband, who would automatically make any man very rich. Now, obviously the Queen of England would have had a great many more complications surrounding her choice of a potential husband, but if she was beset with a fraction of the money-grabbing chancers that flocked to Baptista's house, you can understand why she stayed single. It would have taken a really extraordinary man to marry Elizabeth, and clearly such a character, a Petruchio for her, never appeared. Within the play itself, the chemistry between Kate and Petruchio is the most important thing. Whether you like the idea of them falling in love at first sight, so that everything thereafter is an insane game or a war of nerves between them, or perhaps that they hate each other with a volcanic passion, if there isn't something electric between the two leads, it's hard to justify spending time with them. Franco Zeffirelli's film that I mentioned from the late 1960s is worth watching, I think, only for the fireworks between Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. For my money, the most intriguing and effective pairing was Meryl Streep and Raoul Julia, who were pitted against each other for Shakespeare in the Park in New York City in the late 1970s. There's a very good documentary called Kiss Me Petruchio that features the best bits of the performance, and you can find it fairly easily on YouTube. The two are so brazen and so passionate in their acting, and so eloquent in the way that they describe these two characters, that you'll never look at Kate or Petruchio quite the same way again. For all that, I don't know if Shakespeare could ever have conceived of a woman like Meryl Streep playing this troublesome heroine. I was intrigued by one writer who suggested that maybe Shakespeare wrote this play for his audiences after a series of histories. The plays we've been reading so far are all from early in his writing life, as far as we can ascertain, and you can almost get the sense of Shakespeare testing the waters. The comedy of errors sprang almost entirely from Plautus, whose Roman form of comedy was over a thousand years old. In Two Gentlemen of Verona, he drew on some slightly more recent sources, but there's also the Italian setting and a few tropes again from Commedia dell'arte. Likewise, here in Fair Padua, where we lay this scene, there's a kind of lusty, bawdy, garish world of play. What makes this play special is this tricky woman, Kate, who is not just a shrew. She's not just a shouty, difficult harpy like playwrights had made fun of all the way back as far as Aristophanes in Athens. Kate is rather more complicated and Shakespeare makes her interesting enough that we ask questions about her. What might her opinion be? What might her life be like hereafter? For me, I think that Kate might just be the moment in which Shakespeare starts to realise that it could be possible to create female leads. 
Julia, Sylvia, Adriana and Luciana are all defined mostly by the men around them in the previous plays, but Kate remains defiant. In her, we see the kernel of these women like Rosalind, Beatrice and Viola who will dominate some of the comedies still to come. Kate does stand alone in her world of greedy men, but she survives. This final speech she gives, no matter which way you choose to interpret it, is a cracker. After she's spoken it, there's not much else to say, so Petruchio returns to his refrain of Kiss Me Kate, he says it so often it gave birth to a musical, and they head for bed, and the play ends. I'll close this episode by reading it. It's as good as ending as we're likely to find for this troubling, alarming play. And bear in mind the echoes of the instructions for that page Bartholomew. How a noble lady should speak to her husband, what duty she owes him, and how soft she should be. The play does seem to come full circle here, regardless of what kind of a journey the production might take us on. So, if you're ever putting it on, I challenge you, include that induction. How do you think we should interpret the speech? Is she seer, or is she being ironic, or sarcastic, or defiant? I love that there's so much room for Kate's to interpret it. Meanwhile, just as Shakespeare experimented with several genres in his early career, I'm eager for us to get started in all of them. I've done out a full roadmap of the order in which we'll visit all of the plays over the course of this book club journey, with, I hope, a continuous mix between histories, comedies, tragedies, romances, and of course the plays set in the ancient pasts of Britain, Greece and Rome. We'll start with the latter next week as we explore the wilderness of tigers that is Titus Andronicus. Thank you for listening, enjoy the play, and there'll be another book club episode next Saturday. For now, I'll give the last word to Kate. Fie, fie, unknit that threatening, unkind brow, and dart not scornful glances from those eyes to wound thy lord, thy king, thy governor. It blots thy beauty as frosts do bite the meads, confounds thy fame as whirlwinds shake fair buds, and in no sense is meet or amiable. A woman moved is like a fountain troubled, muddy, ill-seeming, thick, bereft of beauty, and while it is so, none so dry or thirsty will deign to sip or touch one drop of it. Thy husband is thy lord, thy life, thy keeper, thy head, thy sovereign, one that cares for thee, and for thy maintenance commits his body to painful labour both by sea and land, to watch the night in storms, the day in cold, whilst thou liest warm at home, secure and safe, and craves no other tribute at thy hands but love, fair looks, and true obedience, too little payment for so great a debt. Such duty as the subject owes the prince, even such a woman oweth to her husband. And when she is froward, peevish, sullen, sour, and not obedient to his honest will, what is she but a foul contending rebel, and graceless traitor to her loving lord? I am ashamed that women are so simple to offer war where they should kneel for peace, or seek for rule, supremacy, and sway, when they are bound to serve, love, and obey. Why are our bodies soft and weak and smooth, unapt to toil and trouble in the world, but that our soft conditions and our hearts should well agree with our external parts? 
Come, come, you froward and unable worms. My mind hath been as big as one of yours. My heart is great, my reason haply more, to bandy word for word and frown for frown. But now I see our lances are but straws. Our strength is weak, our weakness past compare, that seeming to be most which we indeed least are. Then veil your stomachs, for it is no boot, and place your hands below your husband's foot, in token of which duty, if he please, my hand is ready, may it do him ease.